I don't know. I'm not predicting, but I feel bullish <laughs> that more <laughs> peace and prosperity is coming to the region. And wow. that to me is fascinating because most of the generations that went before me could never have said that. Are we looking at a situation where the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict might be on our doorstep within the next few months? And what relationship does that have to the Abraham Accords? Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we're talking about that explosive topic with Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem. Hi, Joel. Welcome from Jerusalem, and uh, we're excited to kind of highlight what these accords are all about. Well, thank you, Carl. Great to be with you. And yeah, we're coming up on a very special anniversary. A lot has happened uh, since that. I'll, I'll, I don't know if we want to get into it. I'll leave it to you. But well, we do. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the head of uh, the leader of the United Arab Emirates actually told me and a, and a delegation of evangelical leaders several years before he made peace with Israel that he was going to do that. So, yeah, the Joshua Fund has been sort of watching it closely, all Israel news, of course, literally covering it. But um, a lot has happened. And, uh, yeah. and of course, then we led an Abraham Accords delegation that you were part of, the first such delegation to go to the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and back here to Israel to meet with all the senior leadership and say, what has happened? What are we learning? And, uh, and that was last year. And so much has happened since. Yeah. Well, you know, Joel, you're right. And I'm uh, here right now, as you know, at the National Religious Broadcasters uh, Convention. Uh, and one of the major focuses is on Israel and its 75th anniversary. Last night, I was talking to a Jewish leader whose uh, heart and passion has been to really engage the U.S. government in supporting the Abraham Accords and uh, is, is you know, continuing to to say uh, grateful things for our work to, you know, as part of a, a group of organizations helping to make the Abraham Accords more known to people in the United States. And I think that's uh, that's been a huge um, opportunity for us to tell people about how important uh, these peace uh, treaties are. Um, before I ask another question, I just want to say, you know, one thing that you've, you shared with me a long time ago, and, and it's really true, when, when we pray regularly and consistently for the peace of Jerusalem and of Israel, and then peace treaties are signed, we need to be rejoicing over that, and we need to be excited about that. Maybe you can talk a little bit. Especially since more listeners. are coming. I believe we got to yes. really be praying because I think we're going to see more uh, in the next year or so. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get to that because I think that's that's one of the profound benefits of having uh, been to the region and seen you know some of these nations that are excited about these Abraham Accords. Maybe you can give the listeners just a just an overview of what were some of the intended goals for the Abraham Accords when they were when they were initiated and some of the conversations that you've had. So when we met with the then crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, commonly and affectionately known in the region as MBZ or MBZ. Uh, he was the crown prince then. He's been uh, elevated since then to the president of the country uh, because the previous president had been sort of in a coma. And so MBZ was the de facto leader now that man sadly has passed away and MBZ is, is the head. Um, when he asked me to bring a delegation of evangelical Christians, first of all, it was the first ever such evangelical delegation to the UAE. And 
we were to ask him about a lot of different things. And one of the things that the team and I wanted to say to him was something I said specifically, which is, you know, we want you to know three things about us as evangelicals. There's more than three, but we want you to know about three when it comes to peace. First, God commands us in the Bible to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we're doing that. We love Israel and we're never going to change. Uh, that's part as a biblical mandate. It's not political. It's theological. And we love our neighbors, uh, the Palestinians, other Arabs and Muslims. That is not political either. Even if we disagree with some of Israel's neighbors, even if we disagree with Israel at times, we love them because Jesus, as a Jewish Israeli, commanded us to love our neighbors So, and our enemies. So we wanted him to know that. But then we said, as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you know, it's been a quarter of a century and we're looking who is going to be the next Arab leader to make peace with Israel. Now, it was almost a rhetorical question. This was the first time after meeting with the King of Jordan and the President of Egypt, we'd never been to a country to meet with a leader who didn't have peace with Israel. Um, this was the first time I'd led a delegation like that. And so we wanted to, you know, just put that out there, plant a seed. I don't know, whatever. I'm not sure I'd say it, but well, he shocked us. NBC shocked us. We were sitting in his parlor in the palace in Abu Dhabi, the capital, and, and, and very intimately, it wasn't like a big palace room. It was intimate. And he leans forward and he says, Joel, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the next guy to make peace with Israel. I'm like, what? And he began to lay out why. Now, at the time, that was off the record. So we couldn't walk out and say, woohoo. We were sitting on one of the biggest news stories of the, of the last quarter century in Arab-Israeli peacemaking. And I wish all Israel news and all Arab news had been in, in motion at that time. It wasn't yet. Um, but he explained what he has later said, and I can talk about it now because it's, it's all obvious. NBC has been clear and the other leaders in Bahrain and other countries, Morocco and all, have, have said, look, first of all, we, we want to make sure we, we do have peaceful relations with Israel. None of those countries have been actively at war uh, in terms of military kinetic war, as they say, like Jordan, Egypt and, and Iraq and others were, Lebanon, Syria. So it wasn't like they had to stand down from military confrontation, but they definitely want peace. But they also want what they call normalization. Mm. And so what they really are saying is we want economic ties. We see Israel as a, as a regional economic powerhouse. It's a technology powerhouse. It is a security powerhouse. It's a cybersecurity powerhouse. It's a how do you create clean water in the desert so it's not so expensive, powerhouse, all these different uh, agri-tech, how do you make the deserts bloom? How do you create enough food security uh, using what Israel uses, computerized drip irrigation? Like we don't have enough money, water just to do what they do in Iowa or, you know, in the breadbasket or anywhere else or in California, just water everything, right? California doesn't have that much water either. So, but here we have to literally, it drips out on computerized spurts uh, every little while. And so, they, they want all of that. Plus, they want tourism. They want Israelis to come and see, get on planes, and uh, and they want their people to go there, and and cultural and sports connections. and They really want robust relations. They're not saying, let me be clear, they're not saying they agree with every Israeli political decision or policy decision. What they're saying is, we may have to argue with you over things we disagree with. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't be friends and we can't work together on things that are of common interest. And that is really what has happened. Uh, and that's why other countries are watching and thinking, I don't know, maybe we should do this too. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fascinating because, you know, again, we we have normalized relations with countries like um, Germany or um, uh, England even. And, and yet we still have disagreements and we don't always agree with 
uh, national uh, agenda items or, or, or other kinds of things, but they're normal. They're not broken. And uh, I think that was one of the primary goals of yeah. the Abraham Accords and was to, to bring the common interests of the region together to the table. You know, you talked about- There was another big one I should, I should add, which is, yeah, form an alliance uh, against the Iranian regime, which they're all, everyone is terrified of. And most of these countries are, you know, they're Muslim countries, but they're not Shia and they're not Persian and they don't have militaries that are as strong as Israel's, even though some of these countries are much larger, but they want to work together with us and the United States to defend themselves against an Iranian nuclear bomb, an Iranian terror regime and so forth. So there are other elements I should have mentioned also. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, from the delegation that we were on, uh, the the conversations uh, both in Israel and in uh, the Gulf nations we went to, uh, that Iran and the common defense and the, you know, the realities of the real world that we live in, where the United States, unfortunately, under this administration, has taken a back seat to providing regional security. They're looking at each other and saying, "Okay, you have resources, uh, you know, in the Arab states, and the U- and the Israelis have a very strong military uh, and economic opportunities, and that's a that's a natural regional alliance." Uh, do you think that they're uh, working uh, positively towards achieving uh, both the social and the economic and the uh, military uh, goals so far? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no question. And in fact. Um, you know, a very senior Bahraini fi- official told me, you know, Joel, we don't even really call it normalization here. We call it formalization because from their perspective, they were never in Bahrain, the kingdom of Bahrain. They were never actively engaged in war with Israel, um, except they were part broadly of the Arab world boycott economically. But they, you know, they're a small country, a million and a half people. They didn't really have a lot of options. But over the years, they've really had a lot of back channel and underground relations. They couldn't openly trade with each other. But there was a lot of warmth going on um, behind the scenes. And so now, once the United Arab Emirates, one of their much bigger, you know, friendly neighbors uh, to Bahrain, once they normalized, um, announcing that on August 13th, 2020, it really only took a few weeks before the kingdom of Bahrain was like, we're in as well, because they always want to be in. They were just too small to take the lead. And, right. and that's why Mohammed bin Zayed's decision to go first after a quarter of a century was so bold. It was so courageous and it was keeping in a promise that he'd made to me and this group of evangelicals, which was striking because he really trusted us in a way that he didn't, you know, he didn't know us. But why did he tell us that and trust that we wouldn't leak it? But all that to say, yeah, um, I think every country involved, I, I, you have to take out Sudan, Sudan normal created the sort of semi-normalized state. We call them a member of the Abraham Accords, but there's a lot of trouble going on in Sudan. We should do a show on Sudan. Sudan's a member of the Gog and Magog coalition biblically, so I've never been real optimistic or bullish, let's say, that Sudan was going to hold. There are reasons for that, but I, I would take them out of the equation. But the other three, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, have all seen significant increases in trade in tourism, in technology transfers, in security and intelligence cooperation. It's funny, I'll just say one more thing on that. Uh, last uh, last summer, or last spring, I guess, I got a message, a back-channel message from a senior advisor to Israel's defense minister 
saying, hey, Joel, the foreign minister of Morocco is a little upset with you. I said, with me? I, I don't even I don't even know the Moroccan foreign minister. I, I'm sorry, why? Uh, what did I not send him a signed book? Or I don't know, you know, I don't know who am I? And this person said, uh, no, because you keep leading these delegations of evangelical leaders to all these different Arab countries and you're not, you haven't come to Morocco. I said, well, I, I don't, um, I don't just do this. Like I don't just walk into a country. I get invited. So, you know, please let them know. I'm sorry if you feel offended. Please don't be offended, but I'm happy to come if you, you know, so I got this message. I got a letter a couple weeks later. Hey, can you come next month? With a delegation. I was like, "Mm, I can't do it that fast. It takes longer to prepare. But I said, I could bring a TBN crew and I could bring a few people. I brought uh, two of our board members from the Joshua Fund. And we thought, well, let's go explore this. If the Moroccans are reaching out, let's reach out with them. And, you know, the plane that we were on was totally packed. Direct flight from Israel to Morocco. There had never been direct flights for, you know, I'm not sure ever, but certainly not the last 20 plus years. And now, you know what, you were on those flights. We went directly from Israel to the UAE, uh, from Bahrain back to Israel. Totally packed, like not a seat available. And we were told, you were with me, we we sat uh, for about 90 minutes with the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates, the the brother, the younger brother of Mohammed bin Zayed. Uh, His name is ABZ, Abdullah bin Zayed. And he told us there was like hundreds of flights every week. And we were like, hundreds? Like, and they're packed. And he said that they're not hundreds of flights back and forth between the UAE and Israel because the government has mandated that. That's the market. Yeah. There's just that many people wanting to travel back and forth. So anyway, this is encouraging. Yeah. It's working. Now, does every country want more? Yes, they want more. <laughs> but, you know, the Bahrainis are like, hey, uh, remember us? Like, we would like more tourism to our little country, which is a beautiful country. You and I were there at one yeah. hotel, though. Just, I mean... It's like if the Caribbean had money, so lovely, so beautiful. And I think, Um, wow. So, so I'm encouraged. They're encouraged. And I've been in these countries now six or seven times and it gets better every time. Well, you know what, Joel, I got to tell you, I remember that, uh, that beach walk we took in, uh, Manama, the, uh, the capital of Bahrain and the conversation. And I also remember you saying, I got this letter from the foreign ministry of Morocco to come and bring a delegation. You want to go to Morocco next month? And I, if it wasn't for family commitments, I was going to be able to go to the, right. that as well. But, um, you know, it's, it is fascinating to see what God is doing in bringing these nations together to make these accords with Israel. And we're going to take a quick break uh, right now, just for a minute. But I, I, I want to come back and talk about some of the other regional countries and, uh, and their relationship to this, both good and bad. We'll be back in just a minute. Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. 
the Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org/impact. Our verse of the day today is found in Jeremiah 33 verse 7. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. And our prayer requests today are number 1, pray that peace prevails in the Middle East and that more people come to know peace through Jesus Christ. And second, pray that Israel continues to prosper and that God grants Israel favor before its neighbors. Well, we're back. Joel, fascinating story. We're talking about the Abraham Accords. We're talking about uh, the way that uh, your interactions with some of the leadership of these countries both predated the Abraham Accords and also affirmed, you know, some of the goals of the Abraham Accords to to normalize relations between Arab countries and Israel. Remember that dinner? Remember the dinner that we had uh with a very senior uh, Bahraini oh. official when we first got there. Just take a second because it's a great anecdote. <laughs> well, you know, this was uh, my first trip to these countries uh at this level. I mean, uh, Joel, you know, I've 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 traveled in the region for years and and done things mostly with the 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 Christian churches and the and and basically believers in those countries both above ground and below ground <laughs> as you will. Uh but uh, this was my first trip uh with a delegation level uh meeting and yes, we were in uh, we were in the capital and we were uh brought into uh, a dinner an iftar dinner, the dinner when they break the fast of of Ramadan uh in the evenings because as most uh, people who know uh, Islam during Ramadan people fast during the day and then they can eat at night and it's uh it's a whole thing when you have a a, a day where you haven't eaten all day and they have a, an amazing meal but the the amazing attention to service the hospitality the level of opulence i was not prepared for <laughs> i really was I've, i've always known middle easterners to be incredibly hospitable but when you combine hospitality with royalty uh and right. <laughs> basically you're uh, you're seeing something amazing i characterized it like a, a cross between uh the arabian nights and downton abbey i mean yeah. it, it was well, it was like women, uh, nothing i'd ever experienced like before in my life tuxedos yes. and or whatever it was maybe and then uh and and then they were like you took a sip of orange juice and boom they filled it right back up again they filled it up that's right. we did not deserve <laughs> it we did not expect it but wow no. when they when these countries want, when royal kingdoms roll, roll out the red carpet you right. you get a little bit of a sense of what the biblical culture is like as americans yeah. we we are so rebellious against okay that's our our dna politically yeah. and historically but you know it's interesting here in this region um, almost every country has a royalty not every country but but it's an entirely different mindset and i will say that while there are some downsides right if the king is corrupt or, or evil that's bad But if you have a benign king, a friendly king, why wow, you really see how with that authority he can make decisions. It doesn't mean he can yeah. pull his people to go change if they are adamantly opposed, but he can move them. And he a, a king can be used to take a country in the right direction or, or wrong, and it's a totally different concept. And uh, you know, my first king that I ever met was King Abdullah in Jordan, and I I was just not prepared for the biblical culture of which I, you know I've read my whole life but I it's something different by meeting a democratically elected leader or meeting a royal it, it just uh it's hard I'm not sure if I'm, I I don't think I'm describing it well but uh well I think, I think you know, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the whole world watched the coronation of King Charles, and you right. know, this was this is one of those um, kind of experiences that, that we in America aren't very familiar with. Uh, maybe if you've had a chance to to meet uh, the president or something like that, perhaps you'd you'd feel very similar. But honestly, it was amazing. But Joel, got to ask the question because you brought up Jordan. There are two other countries in the region that have peace treaties with Israel in the immediate neighborhood of Israel itself, Egypt and Jordan. And yet they have not had the same sort of economic normalization. Talk a little bit about that and contrast, if you will, between those peace agreements and the the Abraham Accords in these other countries. Yeah. So it, that's an important set of questions, actually, uh, Carl. Thank you uh, for thinking of that, because the first thing people have to realize is it's a lot easier to normalize with Israel, if your country hasn't been directly in a kinetic, violent war, right? So Bahrain, UAE, Morocco, they've never fought physically against Israel. So so it didn't mean it was easy. If it was easy to make peace, it would have been done a long time ago. It wasn't. Right. But it's different than Egypt and Jordan. Egypt and Jordan made peace because they wanted to stop war. It, it, it was costing – they were losing every time, 48, 56, 67 – 73. They, they lost every time. King Hussein of Jordan, he lost all of the West Bank, which was occupied by Jordan. It wasn't actually given to Jordan by the UN, but, but they had occupied it in, in 48 and half the city of Jerusalem. And they lost that all in the 1967 war when Israel liberated and unified Jerusalem and, and took Judea and Samaria. Those are the biblical names for what the world calls the West Bank. And that was humiliating for King Hussein, and it almost cost him his throne, though over time he adjusted and eventually made peace with Israel. And then, of course, President Sadat, Anwar Sadat, he invaded Israel in 1973 on Yom Kippur, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar where Jews are not doing anything. They're not watching TV. They're not watching. They're not listening to radio. They're not on their phones. They don't. They're just at home praying or at the synagogue. And they're fasting even. They're not even eating or drinking. And Sadat invaded on that day, hoping to catch Israel off guard and to take us over, capture us. Uh, it didn't work by God's grace and the hard work of, of the Israeli uh, military and a lot of sacrifices and an airlift, admittedly, by the United States 24 hours a day from uh, President then President Nixon and uh, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. They, they turned the tide. So that happened in 73. By 77, Anwar Sadat was ready to make peace, very boldly, first Arab leader to do it. But he was the leader of the largest Arab country in the world. Mm -hmm. He had the power to not care what everyone else wanted. And he realized, look, I may not have won in, in 73, but I sort of bloodied Israel's nose enough that my honor and my country's honor is back. Now let's call it a day. I can't afford war to go on for another and another, and there's too many people who have suffered. So that was good. That was bold. And, you know, another story maybe for another time, but I should tell the story at some point of meeting the widow of Anwar Sadat in the very home in Cairo uh, with my first delegation that I led there and my two sons, uh, Jacob and Jonah, um, with me. It was amazing to meet the widow of Sadat in the very home where Anwar Sadat had both plotted the cruel and I would say evil attack against Israel in 73, but also the same home where he had plotted the peace offensive of 77, which led to the 
the Camp David Accords in 78 and the Peace Treaty in 79. So, like, wow. But all that to say, the people of Egypt, okay, they didn't want to at war, but they have a lot of pain and a lot of anger, and they don't want peace with Israel. They don't want normalization. And the same thing with Jordan. 70% of Jordan, roughly, are Palestinians. So even though the king is quite moderate and has peace with Israel, King Abdullah, who, you know, his father made the peace treaty in 1994, and then King uh, Abdullah inherited it and continues it quite deftly, but his people don't want normalization because they have very deep anger and bitterness towards Israel. So that's what makes it different. I will say from getting to know President el-Sisi in Egypt and getting to know King Abdullah, and not just once, but multiple times, spending hours with them, I know that they they share their people's concerns, but they also think the bigger picture is peace is good Normalization is hard, but let's try to find a way for our economic growth to go up, our trade with Israel. And since the Abraham Accords, I've got some numbers if you want them, but but yes, Jordanian trade with Israel has gone up and Egyptian trade has gone up, even though they didn't make any new formal agreements. Well, I think it's a whole spirit uh, moving through the region, perhaps. And, um, you know, and I think that's quite helpful. Hey, uh, let's talk a little bit differently about Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's relationship to sure. the Abraham Accords. A couple years ago, when we were talking about the, the the prospect of this, as the Abraham Accords came out, it seemed possible that within a few weeks, even, uh, Saudi Arabia might also sign those accords. What What's happened since, and where is Saudi Arabia in relationship to the Abraham Accords? Well, look, there was a lot of momentum building under the leadership of President Trump, Vice President Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and of course the senior White House team: Jared Kushner, uh, Jason Greenblatt, Avi Berkowitz, and uh, and the Israeli, the U.S. ambassador to Israel here, David Friedman. All of them I've gotten to know. All of them have become friends, and I and I and we've talked a lot about these issues together. Their feeling was that the Saudis were inbound on wanting to make a deal. Also, if Trump had had, had won a second term. There would have been complications. There would have been things to. It wasn't going to be as easy uh, because mm-hmm. the Saudis wanted various things that the Trump team was going to have to think through. Do we want to give the Saudis those things? But you know, love them or hate them, Trump got those four peace treaties with the Arab world late in the game in a, in a presidential election year, August, September, October, no, November, December. Boom! He, he got these four plus a plus a deal. By the way, we haven't talked about between Israel and Kosovo, which is a normalization deal, which is a Arab, I'm sorry, it's not Arab, but it is a Muslim country. So that's a whole nother one. But one of the things that Trump did is he really pulled out the lessons from his book, Art of the Deal. He was transactional, right? Morocco wanted something. They wanted American recognition that they're the rightful owners of what's called the Western Sahara, not the terrorist radical force known as the Polisario, which is backed by Iran and Algeria. So no American government had wanted to take that risk. And Trump was like, no, that you, you totally deserve our recognition for that. Yes. So the Moroccans were like, great. Uh, they already wanted to normalize with Israel, but that was what that was their price. And Trump gave it. The, uh, the Emiratis in the UAE, they wanted a number of things too, including the ability to buy F-35 state-of-the-art stealth fighter jets to protect themselves against the Iranian threat. Now, those are still being built. They're not delivered yet. But normally, Israel will be like, I'm sorry, what? You're going to give the Arab countries 
F-35s, like we have them, but we don't want anyone else to have. Them. No, Israel supported that and a number of other things. And and, and the Bahrainis got an in, in, in increased trade package. And, and Sudan, we said we weren't going to talk that much about it, but Sudan got taken off the terror list and they paid reparations to people that have been killed and wounded by Sudanese terrorists. So I think there was like a $638 million settlement. So they did things, we did, Trump did things. So the question when Biden took over, it, it seemed like the Saudis were ready, but mm-hmm. Biden wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. We reported this on all Israel news, actually on all Arab news. We took a, an actual poll of Americans and we found that 79%, 79% of Americans wanted Biden to normalize between Saudi Arabia and Israel as a, as a major priority in his new administration. But Biden had been so hostile to the Saudis that that was, you know, for the first year and a half, that there was no chance of that happening. But we've been reporting, um, my colleagues and I, of, of a shift going on in the Biden administration. And I can mm-hmm. tell you uh, things that we've said on all Israel news, all our Arab news, that, 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 the, that the, the Saudis have indicated to several people that I've talked to personally, including Senator Lindsey Graham, mm-hmm. said this to me on the record on all Israel news, I just came from Riyadh. I just met with the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. He is ready to normalize with Israel. However, he wants to normalize with Biden. There's such tension between Biden and the Saudis. How can we get there? Now, a few other sources I can't go into, but the point is the Biden team has changed. The President Biden himself is changing and his team is changing. And there's now a growing view here from multiple sources. I would say I have like seven sources now that are indicating that Biden wants to normalize, but there are some sticky issues that Hmm. they have to navigate through. MBS wants to normalize and Netanyahu definitely wants to normalize. So we just reported the top diplomatic correspondent here in Israel, which is on all Israel news and he, and, and on the Rosenberg report. And he said on the record from his reporting, there's a view that in the next five to six months, a Saudi-Israeli deal could be struck with Biden probably winning the Nobel Peace Prize for doing it. And if that happens, Carl, it's the view of many, including this uh, journalism, but other, uh, even Biden administration officials that I know and Israeli officials who believe that normalization will open up then with Indonesia, possibly Malaysia, uh, possibly other Arab or Muslim countries. This could end the Arab-Israeli conflict as we've known it Wow. In the next five to six months. That is how wow. big a deal this is. And we probably should have front loaded that. But it's just sort of this is the question wow. you're asking me. And I'm realizing this is a big deal. <laughs> Talk about burying the lead. Right. <laughs> I mean, right, we, right. Uh, that, that could that could easily be uh, one of the, the most profound and biblically significant issues uh, and in resolution of, of this problem. Joel, I think that's probably where many of our listeners want to go next, which is, okay, Joel, so all of this is happening. Where does this fit in the biblical narrative about uh, the end of days and the historical, uh, biblically and, and, and prophetic role for Israel and uh, in the world? So maybe I know that's probably a, a whole series of podcasts or maybe even yeah. books for you to, to write I, on. But I can give you a short version. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. That, no, let's, let's definitely do that and soon. But the short version is most people, when they think of Bible prophecy and the end times, they're thinking about wars and rumors of wars. 
Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus said would happen in the last days. But, you know, there are other specific prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, including, obviously, including uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which talk about cataclysmic wars. And then, of course, you get into Revelation. you got the War of Armageddon and all kinds of, you know, horror show going on. So that's the way people think about it if they think about Bible prophecy at all. But there are nuances that are important. And that is, for example, in Ezekiel 38, yes, that prophecy leads to this massive war with Russia, Iran, Algeria, uh, Sudan, Turkey, and other countries coming to surround and attack Israel and try to consume her, devour her, to conquer her in the last days of history. That is going to happen. However, the word in Hebrew is aval, aval, before that happens, three things have to happen. Israel has to be reconstituted as a country with Jews coming back and resettling the land. Check. Check. <laughs> okay. That's Ezekiel 36 and 37. Then Israel has to become prosperous, really prosperous, because in the early stages of Ezekiel 38, the text describes people saying, why Gog, this Russian dictator, why are you doing this? Are you coming for plunder? Are you coming for our wealth, essentially? I'm paraphrasing. But so Israel must be so prosperous that it would tempt a Russian dictator to say, I want that. Now, Israel's pretty prosperous by regional standards without oil, right? It's pretty amazing. Maybe we'd be more prosperous. Maybe could that be 50 years from now, 100 years from now? It could, but you know, the technology that we have, the, the wealth that's being generated just by our technology is tempting to a country like Russia that's dying. Mm-hmm. And by the way, part of our wealth here in Israel now comes from natural gas that we've discovered offshore. Russia's biggest export, its biggest moneymaker is natural gas. So we are cutting in as Israelis now into the Russian market. So that's something to watch for. The third thing is Israelis need to be living securely in the land. That's what Ezekiel 38 says. It doesn't actually use the word peace, shalom, but it's pretty clear that Israelis are feeling very comfortable. They're living securely. Well, how do you live securely if your whole country was born in war and is war and terror ever since? Well, you have to have peace treaties and not just treaties, not just pieces of paper. You have to actually have peace. So the fact that we've gone from two peace treaties, Egypt in 79 and Jordan in 94, to six peace treaties now with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, that is dramatic. Now, if we normalize and make peace with the Saudis and then the Indonesians and the Malaysians and the Qataris and the, you know, the, you know just if it can keep spreading, Kuwaitis maybe – You don't need all of those to make Israelis feel secure in the land. But that plus F-35s, plus, you know, long-range missiles, plus submarines, plus our relationship with the world's only superpower, the United States, all that suggests that we are moving steadily, actually quite decidedly, towards Mm -hmm. being able to check the box, at least humanly speaking, that we're living securely in the land. I'm not saying there's not still trouble, but Israelis are used to trouble. What we're not used to is peace and security. And so I have to say, Carl, I, I'm, I'm not predicting that the war of Gog and Magog is going to happen tomorrow. But but the trajectory of more peace treaties and more security and more warmth and normalization is consistent with the prerequisites that have to happen before the next big prophetic war. And that is intriguing and I think is being undernoticed, underestimated by most Christians, even those who are interested in prophecy. Yeah, no, we've we've done uh, podcasts on the War of Gog and Magog, 
in the past, and it's been always a uh, major interest of our listeners to understand the the nature of that conflict. And I think this uh, conversation about the Abraham Accords raises raises the bar a little bit and says uh, one of the one of the elements is not just the alignment of the enemies against Israel, but it's the I guess would you say Joel that the uh, the Abraham Accords is producing or provoking perhaps a bit of uh, anger or jealousy on the part of some of these uh, nations like Iran well, and Turkey and Russia. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Iran is, uh, you know, you can only imagine the terror masters of Tehran are are furious by this. Yeah. And and the Palestinian leadership has been very yes. outspoken, very Another angry. So that too is dialing down. Uh, they're reassessing. They realize it doesn't look like there's any way to derail these agreements. Maybe we have to figure out how to work with these agreements. Look, I... Uh, I know it sounds crazy to say, but I suspect there's going to be some sort of Israeli-Palestinian rapprochement, to use the French, or is it a real peace treaty? Is it just something that makes it better? I don't know exactly, but, but you know, uh, you know, and I don't know if we've said it on the podcast, but last year I was invited by the number two most powerful guy in the Palestinian Authority – a guy named Hussein al-Sheikh, to come and visit him in Ramallah. Now, I'm an Israeli. I'm a Jew. I'm an evangelical. I'm a Zionist. I love the Palestinians, but I don't agree with the policies of the Palestinian Authority, some of them. But, you know, so why would he invite me? Because he was trying to open up a channel to talk to evangelicals and, 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 and build a relationship. And so, look, I don't want to overstate what that is. But what I'm finding so far, if you just look at the pattern, the countries and leaders that want to meet with evangelicals, I happen to be, for whatever reason, in God's sovereign sense of humor, the guy that they're asking to come and meet with them. I, you know, I don't know why. And, and not by myself. I mean, bringing you and bringing others. It seems like before they make peace, they they meet with us. I'm not sure even how to correlate that. It's just that it's one of these feelers and I have the opportunity to not only hear these things, but then communicate them through you and all Israel News and all Arab News and Rosenberg Report and say, hey, we need to be praying for these things because, well, God is actually answering. It's easy to go, well, we've been praying for peace for a long time. It's never happened. I know, but now it is. And that's why we need to redouble, re-triple our efforts. So the last point I would say is I don't know how to reconcile the demands of the Palestinian people and leaders mm-hmm with Israel's security needs. I don't know how to do it. So we never came with peace proposals to these Arab countries. But I will say that these Arab countries that we've met with, setting aside the Palestinian leader uh, that we met with, but the others, they're realizing, look, they're not sure if there's a way to reconcile that either. But what they decided is, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's make peace. Let's normalize with Israel. Let's not give up our view that the Palestinians need justice, need Mercy need compassion, which I agree with. And that's why I think they also inviting me. They realize that, yes, I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish, I'm evangelical, I'm a Zionist, but I'm not unreasonable. Those things don't mm-hmm. add up to enemy. They add up to, okay, Joel's a true believer, but he also is a bridge to this evangelical world. And it's the evangelicals who not only love Israel, but they love peace. They're called to peace. They're called to love their neighbors. So I'm just saying, I think there's more coming, whether it's the next five to six months. That I don't know. But, you know, I did write a novel uh, <laughs> called The Jerusalem Assassin, in which right. the Saudis want to normalize with Israel and they want the Americans to broker the deal. And uh, now it brings all the bad guys out of the woodwork to try to literally blow up the peace summit. But mm-hmm. 
that was a crazy idea five years ago or whatever. When you wrote that. Now I've actually brought that book yeah. to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who doesn't have peace with Israel, right. but according to the local reports, has just talked to Netanyahu twice in recent weeks, recent days, about normalization. Like I, I brought that book. And I had that conversation with the man who can make the decision. The king wow. of Saudi Arabia is quite ill at this point. And so he's really not – he's not the effective leader of Saudi Arabia anymore. The son really is, even though he's not the king. It's similar to MBZ being the crown prince, but effectively leading the country until you know the king and the president pass. Yeah. It is similar right now. And so to have this conversation with MBS – Wow. Not just for two seconds and a handshake and a photo op, but yeah. over hours. And to give him that book, it's interesting. I'm not saying that I'm playing a role. I'm saying I happen to have an opportunity to be a witness as well as to be a witness back from what I've heard from him and share what I can with the evangelical world and to say something big is happening. Yeah. And even Biden is turning into it. So whether it's Biden or the next Republican president, whenever that happens, I don't know. I'm not predicting, but I feel bullish that more (laughs) peace and prosperity is coming to the region. And that to me is fascinating because most of the generations that went before me could never have said that. Could never have. And, you know, Joel, I will say, as we often say on this podcast, stay tuned uh, (laughs) because uh, this is uh, uh, what we said earlier about the Abraham Accords and and potentially a game-changing agreement of peace with uh, Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, the re-engagement perhaps of the U.S. and the increasing tension with some of the players on the chessboard from the opposite side of the Abraham Accords, Iran and Turkey and others. So uh, these these are times when no one uh, listening should be uh, going to sleep on what's happening uh, in the epicenter right now. As we always say, it is the epicenter for a reason. You know, it's it's the center of human history. It's the center of biblical narrative and biblical history. And it's the certainly the center of the prophetic and uh, where where things are going. So, Joel, I want to thank you uh, once again for taking us uh, where really nobody else uh, is capable of taking us uh, into the palaces and into the the conversations uh, of such importance of what God is doing in the Middle East right now. Thank you for uh, just uh, giving us an update on the Abraham Accords in this hour. Happy to do it. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> this is a good, good episode, yeah. But you're right. We did bury the lead, and um, but uh, hopefully people uh, stuck with us and and got the real meat and potatoes, the, the, the pearl inside the oyster in this yeah. particular podcast. Exactly. Well, thanks again, Joel. And for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about all we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work we're doing in this critical region. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on this podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, and I've got exciting news. In 2023, I'm inviting you on behalf of our entire board and staff to come to the Holy Land, to come to Israel on the next Prayer and Vision Tour. This is the 75th anniversary of the prophetic rebirth of the modern state of Israel back in 1948. And what is God doing here? It's amazing, spiritually, economically, in so many ways. There's been so much growth, so much progress, but the best is yet to come. And we want you to see it. We want you to walk where Jesus walked 
We want you to see where the apostles ministered. We want you to see where people's lives were transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We want you to see this city where Jesus died and rose again and where he's coming back, I hope soon. But in the meantime, come to Israel with the Joshua Fund. You can learn more about the trip, the itinerary, the cost, all the details at joshuafund.com. But sign up quickly because I think this thing is going to fill up fast. The Prayer and Vision Tour of Israel in the fall of 2023. I hope to see you there. God kept calling my heart like I just knew he was my safe place. I hope people don't walk away going, wow, you're really awesome. More than like, wow, Jesus is really interesting and he's really awesome. Everybody on this planet is dealing with some sort of what if. How does that one courageous decision affect the whole world? A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. If you were encouraged by what you just heard, please search Trevor Talks on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com.